This week, Katanji Brown-Jackson is heard by the Senate Judiciary Committee. Two GOP governors vetoed bills banning transgender teenagers from participating in K-12 sports. And the U.S. declares Russia committed war crimes in Ukraine. My name's Noah Huey, and this is Under the Stars. Welcome back to another week, everyone. Thanks so much for tuning in. Before we begin, I want to remind you to follow my Instagram. That's at Huey Noah. That's at H-U-G-H-E-Y-N-O-A-H. That's at Huey Noah. And to subscribe to Under the Stars on YouTube, which actually has moved YouTube channels. So if you were subscribed previously, you likely aren't anymore as the channel is currently... I'm moving things over and I'm deleting old things. So unfortunately, a lot of old footage and all those old episodes are probably... The video versions are probably gone now. Um, but that's fine. I, I just needed to move the YouTube channel and there was no way I was going to download a million videos and move everything over. So, um, you likely aren't subscribed to the new Under the Stars YouTube channel. So search up Under the Stars with Noah Huey on YouTube and the channel should at some point start appearing, especially after this week when I start uploading videos on it again. So make sure to subscribe on YouTube to see all my clips and favorite moments from the podcast video, which are only available on Spotify. So if you'd like to see the full video, then you can uh, watch it on Spotify. And you can also listen to Under the Stars on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And um, wherever you do listen, whether it be Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or somewhere in between, make sure to give it a review. Um, you can also support my show through my merch and my books in the shop section on my website. Be greatly appreciated. And I'd like to let you know that my fourth book, Hanging in the Balance, will be available for purchase on Amazon or in my store on Friday, May 29th, 2022. So end of next month. It is up and on Amazon, so you can look at it, but it's not available for purchase and won't be until May 29th uh, this year. So make sure to be on the lookout for that. Our first piece of news... Our first couple of pieces of news actually lie in the um, judicial branch of the federal government, as Katanji Brown-Jackson faces a slew of questions on her previous cases and precedent um, during her confirmation hearings um, throughout the week. Um, quite a lot happened. L to, to sum up what I describe as, um, I guess, the crux of this entire process has been that it's a pretty standard uh, Supreme Court hearing. I mean... It was largely a um, chance for senators to politically grandstand. Um, GOP senators kind of used it as an opportunity to um, kind of show off how great they are to voters um, so that they can either um, uh, help themselves um, next election or if they happen to be planning on running for president potentially, which is always something to consider, especially um, two years before an election year, um, at a, uh, right around a midterm year. You know, that's something that um, the senators are going to be doing, especially if they do plan on running for president, which, you know, given that Trump hasn't technically said he's going to run again, um, who knows? Maybe maybe one of them will try and give it another shot. Now, the thing is, you know, I want to be as fair as possible about how I assess these questions. Um, but But I'm going to have to... Excuse me. I, but I'm going to have to be very clear about something. To be quite frank, while I do believe that both parties have been incredibly... Um, how do I put this? Have been incredibly partisan, to put it quite blatantly. Have been incredibly self-interested and self-serving in every possible way known to man um, throughout this process, as that really is the true nature and the true purpose of a Senate approval process of a Supreme Court nominee um, is for political parties to reaffirm their ideological delusions and to uh, force the world to listen to their worthless, petulant grievances. I do have to say 
that given that it, it was a nominee appointed by a Democrat, the Democrats control everything, and um, she's considered a more liberally minded in terms of judicial philosophy judge, um, the Republicans really were the ones that stole the show with just the the sheer amount of, not incompetence, but incompetence's close cousin. Um, and for me it started, because I did watch, I did actually sit through and watch some of it, maybe the first two days, or not the first two days, but um, um, this was Tuesday and Wednesday. Um, mostly Tuesday's the day I really sat and watched any of this, but it started for me with Lindsey Graham. Um, I actually did take notes now that I'm thinking about it. I took some notes. I stopped taking notes after a while. I was like, okay, this is pointless. Um, so I can kind of read you some of the notes I took Tuesday, I think is when this was taken. Um, I, when I got on there, um, Patrick Leahy, Leahy was talking at the time, bickering. Oh, I remember this bickering with, um, Ted Cruz. They were just kind of bickering over, um, political influence in the courts. And, you know, this is something that I, I talk about a lot, um, on my podcast and in my commentary in general, my, my commentary in general is that the judicial system should not be in any way, shape or form a reflection of political ideology. Rather, it needs to act independent of it. In fact, that's how I believe the entire federal government, how all government should act more particularly. But, um, and I've probably read this quote a million times, but I'm going to read it again. Um, here it is. So, um, you know, when I, when I talk about the Supreme Court, and I, I've mentioned this, I mentioned this back when liberals were calling on, on Breyer to retire. I mentioned this when he announced his retirement. I've mentioned this multiple times. The, the Supreme Court is like, is in my opinion, our country's last hope against partisan delusions and demagogues overrunning the impartiality of government and enforcing instead in its place a cultural dichotomy of, of moral and intellectual absoluteness, which is to say that given that I am fairly convinced that any political party, however notably the two that we have, um, believe only in the supremacy of their ideology, and they become delusional. It becomes delusional, as I am very well known for saying, as I've made very clear my opinion on, through not believing any other version of events that does not reaffirm those kinds of beliefs that conservative or liberal ideology should run all tenets of government and of politics and culture and is the superior ideology. Um, that's when it becomes delusional. And I think the vast majority of people involved in politics are, in fact, delusional. I say this both from experience and observation, as well as minor um, empirical evidence, though I wouldn't say that empirical evidence really uses the phrase in delusional. That's more of a commentary thing um, from my perspective. All this to say, um, in my 2020 book, Yes, Master, um, I have a section on this. And any time I have a chance, I love to read this quote from it, because while I do think I was a, I was rather extreme in my commentary in Yes, Master, I think it does hold minor merits that I'd like to bring up here as well. Uh, at the time, I talked about the death of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Um, it, my quote is, quote, literally seconds after she passed away, the politics of the left and the right took over and the issue of appointing a judge was crucial to Trump. Thus, the truth reveals itself. The reason this is such an important issue is appointing left or right wing judges can benefit the left and the right. Once again, the structure of checks and balances is weakened because with justices like Brett Kavanaugh or RBG who agree and disagree with certain beliefs leads them to voting along or against those beliefs. The notion that judges, especially justices on the Supreme Court, vote only based on the concept of legal precedent and the notion that all people have a right to life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness is dead. Most judges, especially ones appointed by politicians, vote along the lines of what they want to see happen in the country, whether it goes in a left or rightward path. Now, this is a very assertive, this is a very strong assertion to make with very little evidence, and I think I overstepped my boundaries a bit in saying that. However, I can say that is the goal. You know, liberals and conservatives, Democrats and Republicans, whatever, 
Um, they're not necessarily interchangeable, but I do often use them interchangeably because I think they're both going so far left and right that it really won't doesn't matter or won't matter whether or not you call them liberals or conservatives because ultimately that is <coughs> where they're going. Because and, and to kind of go off onto a tangent about politics, you know, that's bound to happen because uh, I, I think because. When you believe that your ideology is a superior one in all ways, shapes, and forms, no ifs, ands, or buts about it, and nobody gives you the vindication you seek, well, of course you're going to get more extreme, because you believe that your perfect ideals are being defied by an evil society attempting to oppress you. You're delusional. You're crazy, in my opinion. Um, and so that's why I often use delusion. Um, so Leahy and Cruz argued about that, and all I have to say is, it will always be the goal of a partisan to put only partisans in power. Always. Whether or not they succeed or made the right judgment, I can't tell you. Now, like, I supported Amy Coney Barrett despite some of her beliefs because I think that she's a... I think she's um, She's a judge who seems to be... She seems to understand, um, I, su I guess, I suppose, what needs to happen. Um, and actually, Katanji Brown-Jackson aligns very similarly with Amy Coney Barrett on that matter, on, on not speaking to politics, because politics is futile. No, that's not her words. That's really mine. Um, something I liked uh, that Jackson said was that, in essence, society doesn't understand appell the appellate system, which creates the animosity that so many people face. You know, I believe her analogy was that a person will go into the appellate system and be left kind of bedazzled and confused and um, that person becomes angry and thinks they've been wronged when really everything happened as it should have. And so they believe they've been wronged by the justice system, which is why she said she employs in her courts. Um, she uses the courtroom as an opportunity to educate the populace um, that come before her. And I think that's a very that's a very I think that's a noteworthy thing, because I think that's very true. I myself often get very, very lost in the weeds of of legality of the legal system let alone the appellate system. Um, and I think that justices that take the time to help keep um, help keep the country focused on what is and is not and not letting, especially in this instance, political partisans manipulate and distort that information through delusional ideological lenses, it's very nice. Um Mm, let's see. People started talking about the soft on crime thing. Um, you know, she's got a deep care for public safety, has personal connection through her uncles and her brother. Civic duty to the Constitution led to service as a federal public defender, first of her kind in the Supreme Court position. Cares about following the laws, is her statement. We They then went to Guantanamo Bay. Um, the 2004 Supreme Court rules George W. Bush is okay to do what he wants but then also rules that legal challenges from inmates are okay. In 05, Jackson began her service as an, uh, as an assistant public defender, I think, with um, lots of habeas cases, um, which are just instances in which uh, inmates at Guantanamo Bay would say, hey, I'm not supposed to be in here. Um, I don't know what M-U-O-N, not M-O-N. Not much to work with. Oh, given everything was classified, that was a difficult issue. She went to private practice in 07. Um, uh, ba -ba -ba -ba. Commitment to being even-handed. Her reversal rates. Um, she treats it as... Um, like, oh, these judges disagreed with me, used it as an opportunity to learn. That Okay, that I liked. I liked that her view on, on a decision she made that was then reversed. I liked the way she approached it. She articulated it very well in that she saw it almost as like an opportunity um, to learn and to say, okay, these guys disagreed with me. Why was that? I thought that was very nice. Um, and, it, you know, new interpretation or establishment of a new standard. Um, as a learning thing, focus. Um, I thought, personally, right about the time we got to people talking about her diversity and experience, you know, she developed a very particular methodology with the amount of things she's done. Um, I thought there was far too much focus, and based on what I saw afterward, 
on uh, Wednesday. And I think, did they do questions on Thursday or was that when people spoke? I think that's when they had witnesses speak. I thought there was far too much focus, most particularly from the Republicans, on Joe Biden as a nominator instead of Katanji Brown-Jackson as a nominee and the Democrats as a party that supports this nomination. I believe it was Lindsey Graham who asked, are you aware the left supports you? As if that was a question with any particular merit or anything. It's like, yes, certain political ideologies like me because I rule in certain instances, largely in instances that they agree with. Um, You know, I think sometimes legal philosophy and political philosophy are intertwined into one thing by Republicans and Democrats because that just makes it easier to control um, the narrative on those issues. And I think that's a very unfair thing. In my opinion, a legal philosophy and your political philosophy not just ought to be, but I think largely are realistically two different things. They exist on two different levels. And I think that interpretation of the law, yes, I think partisan politics plays a part into it. That much I do believe most fervently. However, I also think that um, the synonymization between political and legal philosophy is incredibly unfair and it's just Republicans trying to fear monger so that people, because here's the thing, Everything the Republicans said in their grave defiance of Katanji Brown Jackson as a nominee was not was not to um sorry, I lost my train of thought because my dog's running up here and barking. Uh what was my train of thought? Oh, um the attacks from the Republicans were not to are not genuine. There's no genuine questioning of a of a single thing Katanji Brown Jackson is. She's the most qualified, I think, fair my I think because the thing is I was fairly impressed with Amy Coney Barrett based on her questioning. Brett Kavanaugh sucked, but Amy Coney Barrett I was impressed with because of the way she was handled her questions. Katanji Brown Jackson blows her out of the water. I mean, she's a clearly a very fair minded reasonable person who she's I mean and that that is sad first of all that that's amazing that that's like like the fact that we live in an age where being reasonable is a grand notable thing to take to like take note of is very pathetic and I only have the Republicans and Democrats to blame for that as they as they have uh, erroneously uh, diluted the political discourse in this country to such a disgusting degree that it has little to no meaning anymore and so to have someone so reasonably minded sitting there, I think, is impressive, let alone the fact that she has such a, a varied colored, like just a very wonderful a history, I suppose. So much experience makes her such a well-rounded, I think, judge. And I think that that makes her such a great judge that these attacks are largely superfluous and based only in political delusions and partisan ideology. Nothing more, nothing less. And I think that to try and come to some kind of summation on this topic, because I don't want to go for too long. We actually have quite a lot to talk about. To come to some form of summation on the topic, I just have to say that the Republican attacks and the Republican remarks um, aren't to be any kind of genuine investigation into any kind of conspiracy. They're to justify foregone conclusions. They were always going to vote against her because they don't care. Just like how the Democrats didn't care about Amy Coney Barrett largely, it's all partisan delusion and partisan ideology. That's the only thing that drives the mind of a Democrat or a Republican, especially the most hard-driven ones. It's amazing to have a Ben Sass or a or, uh, oh my God, what is his name? You, uh, I've lost the name of the guy. Man, I've lost the name of the guy. Oh, that's going to bother me for the rest of my days. Um, point is, it, it's rare to have anyone like a Ben Sass in either party or a, a Mitt Romney or anything like that. And even then they have their issues, but that's because they're human. But the way these mainstream Republicans and Democrats function is partisan ideology is the basis of everything they ever will believe or do. And they don't care if it hurts you. 
because they have convinced themselves in a grand delusion that they are morally, intellectually, philosophically, and politically superior to you, and that their ideology is an absolute fix to all of America's problems. Not only is that a wrong thing to believe, but it's stupid. And they just simply refuse to see that. And instances in which, like Lindsey Graham, for example, opens with a question about her religious faith, lots of leading questions trying to compare Jackson to Amy Coney Barrett, lots of I, the leading questions really got on my nerves, clearly trying to force an answer out trying to paint her as a, a traitor to the United States to force people to see her as a moral evil so that he can justify his foregone conclusion that she doesn't vote in ways that I like that do not affirm the legality of my, of my ideologies, political and cultural policing, which is, in my opinion, the ultimate goal of all political ideologies, which is to attain as much power as possible and affirm or, and establish, I should say, a form of political and cultural policing, she won't vote to affirm that for my ideology, for Republican slash conservatism. Therefore, I will vote against her, but I need her to look like a traitor to the United States. Um... Mm, she was pushed on whether on whether she called Bush and Rumsfeld um, war criminals, um, which, first of all, which, by the way, Rumsfeld was the former Secretary of Defense. <laughs> the thing is, they kind of were. I mean, in the most basic sense they were, but the thing is, the U.S. government is this stupid little teenage girl that thinks it has to be perfect at everything. The things that happened under many presidencies, let alone, I mean, just Bush, are not all good. They weren't all good. And to simply assert that that is the case would just be wrong. So, um, Ted Cruz starts talking, and I wanted to jump out of a window... <laughs> His focus was to link her to a critical race theory. Um, frankly, a, a, an idea that I am beginning to believe is fringe because I hear 50 million interpretations of it. I see it maybe once or twice in school buildings in, like, California. And then I'm told it's a rampant ideological, like, cult trying to invade the United States. Um, that's, I think, an obvious manipulation. What I have heard from certain activists on critical race theory... Uh, I think I've talked about it maybe once or twice. It, it seems like a like a just another absolutist, idealist, um, idyllic, I should say, ideological practice that is designed to create absolutes where they do not exist. There's no such thing as moral absolutes. Um, it, there's simply no evidence, empirically tested evidence, that asserts that those kinds of good and evil exist. So Cruz's connection between Jackson and this book Anti-Racist Baby or something. Yes. Massive images behind him. Um, Jackson said that um, the theory, quote, simply doesn't come up in my work as a judge, end quote. Qu quote, critical race theory is never something I've studied or relied on and it wouldn't be something I would rely on if I was on the Supreme Court, end quote. That should be the end of it. However... Um, Cruz went on. Um, yeah, and he did say, oh, that's right. He kind of mucked up some words she said about a speech at the University of Chicago. And, um, um, Jackson corrected him. Again, the point is he will always disagree with her because what he wants is a conservative judge who votes only on conservative ideology under this delusional preception, predisposition, excuse me, that conservatism is this absolutely perfect, intelligent ideology and will be the only one that makes this country good and then it establishes a legal precedent that essentially legalizes conservative cultural and political policing. I will say that a million times. And here's the thing. I believe the same exact thing about Democrat, the Democrats and liberals by and large. Um, the next thing was Josh Hawley talking about Jackson's leniency supposedly on child porn um, offenders. Um, 
Yeah. The thing is, he's saying, oh, that's not the thing that was said. That's not the, the thing that was said. And the thing is, the problem is most legal experts agree that the, the rules, I suppose, set on or the sentencing limitations set on um, child pornography offenses are outdated in the age of the Internet because they were set before the Internet was really a big part of child pornography and um, has not been changed once. And so Republicans have been using that as a weak legal status. Also, there's just multiple philosophical and legal precedents that I would get into if we weren't already kind of caught for time um, that make that assertion once again, just another instance of a Republican pick. Uh, what's the word? Picking whatever abstract idea they can and inflating it um, and inflating its threat as an as a political concept or as a legal concept in this case, um, by one million to fearmonger to voters and, and justify a foregone conclusion simply because she's not going to be a kind of judge that reaffirms conservative policing of the culture and politics. In conclusion, because there's plenty more, all I have to say is that these kinds of hearings are always going to be a political circus despite Ted Cruz's worthless comments on Monday that there was not going to be one. The circus had already started. We were in Act 2 by the time he said that. The fact of the matter is, Katanji Brown-Jackson is an incredibly dutiful and diligent judge with a varied um, liturgical history and an incredible or an incredible legal philosophy based in a... In, based in a very diverse history uh, in her career. And she would be very suited to be a judge on the court. I think she understands um, she understands this country better than a single senator on the Senate Judiciary Committee ever will in their little puny, puny lives. And I think that the Republicans' efforts to block her, just as any Democrat's effort to block Amy Comey Barrett was, was based solely in partisan ideology and in ideological delusion under the, under the predisposition that Jackson would not be an ultra-conservative partisan judge that would reaffirm and essentially legally validate a conservative policing of American culture and politics, which is always the ultimate goal of a political ideology, is to take power from everyone else and use it to police your culture and your politics under the wrong idea that you are smarter, more moral, and simply better than everyone who disagrees with you. So it, it would be ridiculous for her not to get approved because I think she's good regardless of what either party says because they're both wrong and stupid. However, I do have to say she's a very qualified judge and um, I think she'd do great on the Supreme Court, especially in her former boss's um, seat. In other news related to the Supreme Court, texts have been revealed that the wife of Supreme Court Judge Thomas Clarence um, urged the 2020 election to be overturned. Virginia Thomas, wife of Justice Clarence Thomas, reportedly sent 29 text messages to former advisor Mark Meadows, urging him not to concede the election in 2020. Ms. Thomas called Joe Biden's victory, quote, the greatest heist of our history, end quote. The texts are among uh, 2,320 messages Mr. Meadows provided to a committee investigating the Capitol riot. Um, she urged Mr. Meadows, who was Donald Trump's chief of staff, to make a plan in a bid to save his presidency. Quote, do not concede. It takes time for the army who is gathering. It takes time for the army who's gathering for his back. End quote. She wrote on November 6th. It's unclear if Ms. Mr. Meadows responded. Quote, sounds like Sydney and her team are getting, uh, in you, in you, excuse me, in you inundated with the evidence of fraud. End quote. Release the Kraken and save us from the left taking America down. Um, doesn't mention his response. No, he says something about King of Kings or something. I forget. That's what Mark Meadows says in response. Um, yeah. So, and here's the thing. This creates a very interesting and dangerous conflict of interest. The thing is, Clarence Thomas is known to be a more conservative judge, um, and his wife is apparently formally associated with the Tea Party wing of the Republican Party, which is a hardline conservative um, fa uh, section of the party. 
um, that, you know, again, ideological delusions of supremacy and um, just absolute perfection, which simply do not exist and are not backed up by historical or um, empirical evidence. This just creates an interesting conflict of interest that I'm wondering if it had an effect on Thomas, on Justice Thomas. I would hope not. Um, but the thing is, I'll be quite honest, Justice Thomas is one of those justices that I'm not so sure about. Um, just like I'm not, I'm not even remotely sure about Brett Kavanaugh. Not a fan at all. But beyond that, um, I, I don't know, this just raises some questions. And it's, you know, that's, that's it. That's the entire story. Like, I have nothing more to say. It raises interesting questions, and it may assert some ideas of conflict of interest, because... How much does he listen to his wife? How much does he agree with his wife? And does he let his beliefs, if he does agree with his wife, or even if he doesn't, uh, affect how he rules as a justice on the Supreme Court? That's very, very important. Because if we abandon the idea in this country that the federal government, more specifically, that the, ju that the judicial branch of the federal government can't, or no, has to be impartial to all politics then we have no government. We have an empty, shallow sock puppet that is filled by whatever party shuts everyone else up the fastest and the most violent. And there is nothing, nothing, nothing good about a partisan government. I will never, ever, ever believe otherwise. And I know this both because from my own experience as an ultra-conservative who, who harbored beliefs of ideological supremacy in every measurable way, despite the fact that no evidence backed up his opinion. And I also say that from both empirical testing on psychological effects of partisanship, as well as um, contextual, um, what's the word, observation. And I have to say... If partisan politics becomes the new norm in government, then we have no government. We have none. We need a government, and we most certainly need a judicial branch that acts completely, completely adjacent to all partisan politics. Because partisan politics does no good for anyone or anything. And the reason I say that, and the reason I feel so confident in saying that, is because here we are, hundreds of thousands of years after human civilization started, more than hundreds of thousands, but hundreds of thousands of years after human civilization has started, if not more, and we still see the same kind of barbaric nonsense and suffering that we saw back then. So clearly it's not working, because it's been in place for the vast majority of that time period. So, this creates an interesting conflict of interest and that, I, that I'm going to be watching as it unfolds, and uh, I'm wondering how Justice Thomas will respond, because if it does have an effect on how he rules, I don't know how comfortable I feel with him sitting on the Supreme Court. Um, so that's, yeah, that's interesting. That's a lot of, it's a lot of stuff. <clears throat> before I begin, I, I, or before I begin, before I continue, actually... <sighs> I'd like to ask you to um, follow my Instagram, that's at Huey Noah, that's at H-E-G-H-U-I-N-O-A-H, that's at Huey Noah, and to subscribe to Under the Stars on YouTube for um, my favorite moments and clips from the video of the podcast, um, which is only available on Spotify, so if you'd like to see the video, you're going to have to watch it there. If you just want to listen, you can listen on Spotify, but you can also listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, and make sure to give it a review. Um, that would be greatly appreciated. It'll also be greatly appreciated if you would like, you can support my show through my merch and my books in the shop section of my website. Um, and my fourth book, Hanging in the Balance, will be available for purchase on Amazon or in my store on Friday, May 29th, um, 2022. So make sure to be um, looking out for that next month, May 29th. Hanging in the Balance will be available. Our next two stories are about our tale of two GOP governors vetoing, rule, vetoing bills um, that keep trans students from participating in sports, in schools. So our first is in Indiana. Governor Eric Holcomb vetoed a controversial bill that would ban transgender girls from playing on K-12 girls sports teams, saying the bill, quotes, leaves too many questions unanswered and puts schools at risk of being sued. In a letter to the House Speaker Todd Hudson, Holcomb detailed his concerns about the bill and said he vetoed it because... Quote, for me, this current bill falls short, end quote. 
In his letter, Holcomb said in several of the states that passed similar bans, lawsuits have been filed or have threatened to be filed. He added that even before this bill was introduced, a lawsuit was filed in Indiana in federal court by a middle school student who wanted to play in the school sports team of their choice. Holcomb has also said the bill assumes there's an existing problem in K-12 sports that requires the state to intervene and implies the girls' sports are currently unfair. Quote, after further review, I find no evidence to support either claim, even if I support the overall goal, end quote, Holcomb said. He applauded the Indiana High School Athletic Association's decade-old policy that he said has done an, admiral jo an admirable job maintaining fairness and consistency in all sports. Quote, nowhere in, this testimo in the testimony of this legislation was a critique leveled against their model on how to govern this and other complex matters, end quote, Holcomb wrote. Before I get into my commentary, the governor of Utah also vetoed a transgender sports band. Governor Spencer Cox vetoed, vetoed a ban on transgender students playing on girls' sports on Tuesday, becoming the second Republican governor this week to overrule state lawmakers taking on youth sports amid broader culture wars as LGBTQ visibility grows. Um, I lost my spot. Oh, here we go. Leaders in the GOP-dominated legislature, however, quickly called a veto override session and indicated they had enough support to keep the ban in place. There's also pushback against Eric Holcomb. Yeah, we already just talked about that. Cox, for his part, referred referenced the potential effects on transgender youth. Quote, I struggle to understand so much of it, and the science is conflicting. When in doubt, however, I always try to err on the side of kindness, mercy, and compassion, end quote. Cox wrote, to a Cox wrote in a letter to Utah legislative leaders. Um... Shortly after announcing his veto, the governor also called for a special session to provide taxpayer funding for lawsuits filed against school districts and youth sports organizations, an apparent acknowledgement that his veto would and an apparent acknowledgement that his veto would not stand. Um, in Utah, there are four transgender players out of 85,000 who are competing in school sports after being ruled uh, eligible by the state's high school athletic association. Only one competes in girls sports. There is no public concerns about competitive uh, advantages. You know, there's this interesting phenomena, I think, um, about, first of all, just about being trans in general. It's this very novel idea in terms of what exists in the realm of research. Because I'm someone who, especially on these very controversial issues, like abortion and trans um, issues, that they're has to be empirical evidence to support what's happening. Right? Like, you simply can't make broad, sweeping claims about biology and identity without empirical evidence to support it. Big issue is there's not a lot on being trans, right? Like, like a lot of evidence, a lot of research on, on trans mental health, on trans... Um, on just... Being trans, it's a lot of self-reported data, so it's a it's very hard to accumulate. But it's not something that we should avoid or not try and reach towards. Ultimately, and I I I, I really like the way Cox worded it. He struggles to understand it. You know, he has probably been raised not to believe that that's really even a thing. Which statistically, it's not significant, but it does exist, right? And yes, the science is conflicting because. Some scientists say one thing and some scientists say another. And, you know, liberals and conservatives can say, oh, well, the scientists that quote that, you know, in parentheses, say the thing I don't agree with. You know, if you're a liberal and you're like super like pro trans, everyone, you know, just be whatever. Gender is a construct, yada, yada, yada. You can say what you want, but there is like hundreds of years of evidence that has been empirically tested and peer reviewed and and um, reaffirmed in newer studies even that affirm that, you know, this notion that your gender or that your sex, I should say, is assigned to you, that it's just not real, is false. You know, typically males are born with male genitalia and females are born with female genitalia. There's the case of, um, 
what's the term? What is the term? Something uh, for something dite. Good God, don't you know the term, Noah? Ugh, I hate when this happens. Uh, whatever, that's besides the point. I'm focusing, I'm hyper-focusing on the wrong thing. Point is that that is something that can be empirically tested. However, there's also a growing number of, granted, self-reported, but growing number of evidence of people that are like, well, I don't feel that way. And there is psychological research that, and, and biological research that goes into what it means to be trans on a on the most basic level not what it means like philosophically and like interpersonally but just what it means biologically and psychologically to be trans and that evidence is not has, has been i you know there's again it, i'm you're working with like sticks and needles there but you're you're you've got something you're you're on the cusp of something and ultimately a person who feels as if they are not the sex they were born as, that's not just whatever. You can't just brush that away. And you you certainly can't brush it away on br- sweeping, broad, unproven moral claims of superiority. You can't just say, well, God doesn't like it. At the end of the day, we don't live in a religious uh, dichotomy. We have to live in a society of facts, of empirically proven evidence. We can't live in a society of people that that simply make sweeping moral claims out of nothing more than unproven ideological predispositions. We have we have to be evidence-based. Cuz if we're not if we're not living in a world of facts, of empirically proven facts, then we live in a world of lies. And so at the end of the day, Trans people exist. I know trans people, some personally, some not so personally. And they do exist. And they do deserve to be noticed. And they do deserve to be seen. In fact, it's very vital, both, I mean, both on an intrapersonal societal level, but also on an evidence level, because the more that trans people are seen, the easier it is to collect the needed, the desperately needed research we need to be completely sure on on the different aspects of what it means to be trans. Removing the research and the whole that whole thing on a societal level on a societal level these are real people and you may not understand their feelings. Hell, I doubt that they understand their feelings. And that's just making an assumption. Maybe I'm wrong. Based on what I've seen, the stories I've heard, I, I would assume that. And it's really hard, you know? You're born as this thing, as this certain subsect of a species, yet when you look at yourself in the mirror, you feel alien. Um, and it's hard to simply brush that away because this isn't some, this isn't as simple as good versus evil. It's not. And it's not... As simple as one is right, one is wrong, end of story, end of day, everyone just listen to what I want and only what I want. You know, like sex, being born male or female, that's, I think it's, I feel pretty confident in saying that that's a real thing. A doctor doesn't pick male or female just out of the blue. There, there, there's plenty of certain evidence to implicate that that's a thing. But there is growing evidence and growing indication, both in our society and around the world, that just because you are one thing doesn't mean that, especially on an intrapersonal level, that that's what, just what you have to be. And that's a hard concept to wrap our heads around because that's not a natural concept. But we're not a natural species, are we? We are a species that is slowly growing to a point of existence that baffles, I think, nature itself. And we need to understand that, I think. And some people aren't going to like that. A lot of people aren't going to like that. But I think we are a species that exists sometimes adjacent to the rules of nature itself. Because nature is not just this grand arbiter of truth and justice, in my opinion. In my opinion, nature, most particularly human nature, is a force to be defied. Because when you defy nature, you create nature. Lots of conjumbled, lots of jumbled words, but... To simplify that, 
to simplify that, I mean to say that it's hard, both for people who are trans and people who aren't, both for supporters and um, um, critics of trans of of trans people and of trans allies. But it's our job, I think, to support trans people and to and to let them know they're seen. You know, I've on the sports thing, I'm not really qualified to speak on it. I'm not a sports guy. I don't know anything about sports. I don't know the differences. I rec- I, I totally recommend a great podcast. What is it by? Uh, it's Cylinder Radio. It, it, it's Will Rusch's podcast. I've talked about him tons of times on this on, on my show. But he did an episode. It's real great. He did an episode um, with a trans athlete. Let's see if I can find it. Yes. Being a Transgender Athlete with Wrestler Mac Beggs. Great podcast. I'd listen to that. Because it's just two people discussing something. And they know, those two know a lot more about the physicality and all that. So I'm not going to speak on the sports thing. But I will speak larger, just societally, that trans people need to be seen. Both because it helps make it easier so that we can have more access um, to and I hate to refer to people as this, but to research material, but also because they do exist. And to simply wipe them off to the side is not only unwelcoming and unfriendly, but it's also un-American. If I can offer any words of condolence or of of support, I I guess, if I at all have any trans listeners, or if you want to share this with your trans friends or something... I just want you to know, if you are trans, that you do exist and we do see you. And, you know, you are an immensely special person for a multitude of reasons, not just because you're trans, but that is one of the reasons. And I hope that one day, maybe even your lifetime, you'll be able to tell, you know, your kids, grandkids, the people, the young people in your life when you're older, that there was a time when people were less accepting and that this isn't something they have to face as well. Um, Because this is a difficult issue, but you exist. And those of us that aren't like you, we recognize that. And if anything, I, I think we should support you because you're a wonderful group of people that I know of. And There's nothing to fear or be angry about. There's nothing malicious about you, about who you are. And you're not, you're not wrong for existing. You deserve to be here as you are. Your feelings aren't wrong. They're just different than a lot of people. And I hope we as non-trans people do everything we can to help you understand yourself and help us understand you better. Because that's ultimately what we need. Um, So that's what I have to say about that. Moving away... Well, actually, before I get to that point, I want to actually talk about my reminders again. How far in are we on this? Oh my gosh, we're already 15 minutes in? I have like two more things to talk about. God. (laughs) Okay, let's make this fast. Make sure to follow my Instagram. That's at Huey Noah. That's at H-U-G-H-U-Y-N-O-A-H. That's at Huey Noah. Subscribe to, under the search for, subscribe to Under the Stars on YouTube for the full video of the podcast. The full video, or not for the full video. Subscribe to Under the Stars on YouTube for my favorite clips and moments from the podcast. Subscribe, fi- no, find Under the Stars on Spotify for the video, or listen on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, and make sure to, to give it a review. You can also support my show through my merch and my books in the shop section of my website, my book, My fourth book, Hanging in the Balance, will be available for purchase on Amazon or in my store on Friday, May 29th. Check it out when it's available. Leaving the United States for just a moment, the U.S. has declared that Russia, Russian troops, excuse me, have committed war crimes in Ukraine. The Biden administration on Wednesday made a formal determination that Russian troops have committed war crimes in Ukraine and said it would work with others to prosecute offenders said Secretary of State Anthony Blinken. Anthony Blinken. 
Quote, today, I can announce that, based on information currently available, the U.S. government assesses that members of Russia's forces have committed war crimes in Ukraine, Blinken said in a statement released as he was traveling to Brussels for the, NATO, for the summit of NATO leaders. The assessment was based on, quote, a careful review of public intelligence sources since Russia launched its invasion of Ukraine last month. We've seen numerous credible reports of indiscriminate attacks and attacks deliberately targeting civilians as well as other atrocities. And I'm going to actually just end there because since we're cut on time and that's really the gist of the entire topic, I, I do want to move on. You know, this has been the first podcast in like a month that I've not exclusively talked about Russia and Ukraine and all that. So I really don't want to have to talk about it again. You know, critics of the U.S. of the U.S. and the West will be like, well, you've committed war crimes, too. And you know what? And I... No one likes to say your country has done terrible things, but we have bombed multiple countries and killed multiple innocent people. I forget who it was. There was a, I think it was right after we pulled out of Afghanistan when we bombed this one place and killed like a 13 year old kid, or maybe it was like a 17 year old kid. I don't remember, but we've our government has killed plenty of civilians. And I hate... No one likes saying that. Like, I don't take joy in saying that. I genuinely feel bad when I say that. And I think that... There was a post on Instagram that was talking about... Okay. That was talking about um, the U.S. versus Russia. Like, who's the worst in terms of a government... In terms of its foreign relations. And... You know, something that I really don't like is that I hate the comparisons between countries. Why can't I find... This is so annoying. I hate the comparisons between... Okay, I know I follow an account that starts with an M, so there's no way that it doesn't exist. I'm trying to find the account that I posted this comment on, and the fact that I can't find it is frankly ridiculous. Okay, so the, it was a meme about Barack Obama when his Secret Service tells him his daily airstrike in the Middle East has killed another 50 chronically ill children, and it's like a guy getting excited. That's the whole meme. The, 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 the caption said, In your opinion, is the USA morally on the same grounds as Russia? I said... Pretty much, yes. And it should always be our goal to become a more conscientious and cooperative nation. I think the United States has done quite a lot. I don't think we're on the, the exact same run. But at the same time, I don't care about the comparison. Like, making the comparison of who's morally worse as a government brings us to no viable conclusion. Fantastic. You get to you get cookie points. No one cares. Stop clinging to your desperate past to try and make yourself look or sound better than other nations. I'm sick and tired of the international you know what comparing, you know what size measuring contest between nations. It's the most pointless and stupid contest in the history of the world. It gets nothing done. It's a it's it's the it's one of the worst byproducts of international capitalism, in my opinion, is this ridiculous competition between countries. No one cares. The competition is dumb and stupid and all you get is cookie points at the end of the day when you win it. What should matter is that the U.S. government has done bad things. That is true. We have hurt people in our country, but more importantly in this instance, in other countries, and we should be sorry for it. Russia has done the exact same thing, right? We can't say, well, we've done the same thing, Russia, so... Have a nice day. We're not going to do anything about it. And I think that's what Russia expects because Russia doesn't really care at this point. And all I can say in my sad attempt to tie up this podcast is that it's our job as a nation to be more conscientious and, and cooperative. We need to, first of all, at the very least, acknowledge we do bad things and have done bad things, apologize for all of it, provide maybe minor compensation, though at this point, when you do so much, compensation's really just a symbolic thing that would 
collapse the economies of the world. So I would be careful about that. So at the very, very least, acknowledge you've done bad things, apologize for it, and promise not to do it again. That's not hard. And it's not idealistic for a person to expect the bare minimum out of a country. Okay? It's not hard to ask for that. I'm not being stupid. Believe me, I've thought this over a million and a half times. It is not ridiculous to expect a government to acknowledge what it's done wrong, apologize for it, and not do it again. I can ask a toddler to do that exact same thing the U.S. government should be able to. This idea that governments are incapable of doing good things is a delusion designed to make people think that government is inherently evil. That is not true because government is an is a, what's the word is a morally what's that a morally void agency. Its morals come from the people within it. Okay, governments don't make people evil. Evil people get into government. Bad people who do bad things and choose to do bad things get in. Government doesn't turn you evil. That's stupid. Okay? So that's not an un- that's not a bad thing or that's not an unrealistic thing to expect. It's the bare minimum. But we should still hold other countries accountable, especially other countries with just as much power and sway as we do currently at- trying to take the power we have away from us, right? It's our job as the as some of the largest nations in the world to do this. I talked about this on my last podcast. It's our job as some of the largest nations in the world and some of the most powerful nations in the world to be cooperative and conscientious. That's the bare minimum we're asking of ourselves. And we as citizens in the United States should encourage that wholeheartedly. So in terms of this war crimes in Ukraine... I don't not believe that for even a second, but I do want to say yes for my people who th- who are like, oh, it doesn't matter. The West is just as bad. Yes. What's your, I mean, don't tell me that. Tell them that. Stop living in a nihilist fantasy land where you can just sit there on your, on your backside, complain about everything, and just expect everyone to think you're not just an idiot. Um, there is one more thing. The Russian-Ukraine war, just to kind of sum it up, is at a point where there's very well going to be a stalemate. There was like this semi-idea of a Russian deal, but we're at the point in the podcast where I'm really ready to just tie it up. And so I think that all I want to say about that for now, and I may get into more detail in next week's podcast, is that um, this stalemate is going to be really bad for Ukraine, and we should always, always, always want I'm fixing this even though I'm literally ending the podcast now. We should always want this war to end. It needs to end. It needs to end now. So there there was this idea of a Russian deal. I didn't get a good source about, about that. So I'm going to have to find somewhere else and read about it. There was this, I suppose, a Russian deal talked about by the leader of Turkey. Um, I'll have to go into details later in a different podcast because it's an interesting idea. But there's a lot of stuff about that that I'm, that I'm curious about. So let's let's wrap this thing up. I want to close today's podcast and beg the question, what makes America America? What is the national and international identity that we have, that one philosophical thing we all share as a characteristic that we can unite around? It sure does seem like we simply don't have one, doesn't it? According to a 2021 Pew poll, Americans are more divided on politics, race, and religion than any other developed nation on the planet, bar none. Some might see these as indicators America has failed. The great experiment we are was uh, was a bust. Well, I take a different train of thought. In my view, the very nature of our presumptions on unity itself are the problem, not the lack of unity. We assume in our grand and spectacular ignorance as a species that unity is sameness, and that only through sameness will unity come. But we are wrong. Unity, real unity, is coming together to see how trivial our differences are. It's looking at what divides us and finding what feels like an uncrossable canyon, realizing it's a crack in the pavement. We must learn to love and protect those differences, and we must govern because of them in order to live up to the America I think we are. An America of people who see ourselves at home and around the world as a fair, reasonable nation with more heart and more wisdom than we know what to do with. 
Sure, we can keep thinking there's a right side to history and that one of us has to win it, but doing so would destroy this country, it would destroy everything we touch, and it would be, to be entirely plain, stupid and wrong. History is uncaring about our identities. They are nothing. What matters is that in the face of all these things, we choose to be a country that acts in its conscientiousness and fairness to our own citizens at home and to the citizens of other nations around the world. That's it this week. Thanks so much for listening in. Make sure to follow my Instagram. That's at Huey Noah. That's at H-U-G-H-U-Y-N-O-A-H. That's at Huey Noah. Subscribe to the new Under the Stars YouTube channel. If you had been already, you're probably going to want to do it again um, for um, my favorite clips, moments from the podcast, all that type of stuff. The full video of Under the Stars is available on Spotify. So if you're not listening on Spotify, you can also watch on Spotify if you didn't know. Though if you're listening on Spotify, you probably did know that because a big video screen should pop up. Uh, You can also listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and wherever you are listening or watching. Make sure to give it a review. You can also support my show through my merch and my books in the shop section of my website, which brings me to the note. My fourth book, Hanging in the Balance, will be available for purchase on Amazon or in my store on Friday, March, excuse me, Friday, May 29th, 2022. Again, Friday, May 29th, my fourth book, Hanging in the Balance, is available. It's, I think I've said this before, it's like structurally the best book I've ever made. Um, it's like it just does everything right. You know, like being as that I have independently published all four of my books thus far, simply because a publisher would be something way out of my price range as a, a middle, low, as a, I guess, low, middle income American um, child. Um, you know, it's one of those things that's like, uh, I, is or is not possible. And so, you know, I've always been appreciative of it, but that also put a lot more work on me. Well, this time I think I've done it right. And uh, in terms of content, I also think it's great too, though. So make sure to check it out. It'd be greatly appreciated. Um, Thanks so much for listening in as well. And I can't wait to see you or hear you uh, next week. See you then. Bye-bye.